Episode 16, make sure you check out episode 15 called You Got the Juice, featuring my cousin Gerard Brown, who is a co-screenwriter of the iconic movie Juice. But today, a very special guest in the building, it's going to be very dope, we're talking about a lot of different topics, very informational, probably going to open your eyes today. So as usual, make sure you stay tuned, stay hip, stay connected. So we live. As I said before, I have a very interesting and dope guest today. Got one of my closest childhood friends in the building, one of the smartest people I know, and one of the brightest people and intelligent people I know. My man's Mr. Omar Musa. What's up, Ons? Hey, Assalamualaikum. What's going on, TK? I'm good. I'm good. As you see by the introduction, my man is Muslim. Okay. And I know in today's 2017, Islam is a very well-discussed topic. Uh, a lot of people have their different ideas, perceptions of it, and, you know, unfortunately, I think at times people do not have a full idea what Islam really is or fully understand the ins and outs of it. So today I have a very special guest bringing Omar in the building, Omar, here because Omar is very, very intelligent and he knows Islam from the back of his hand. Um, I think you can give a very insightful, balanced, and really non-biased um, expression and detail about Islam. And so I think it'd be very dope and very interesting. So as usual, guys, this is well-connected. So you may not always agree with everything, but have an open mind. Let's get into it. All right, so um, so we get started, man. Uh, give a little quick background about yourself. Yeah, I mean, first of all, TK, I appreciate the intro. Um, I don't want to say I know Islam like the back of my hand. That's, that's a very, very nice thing to say. But essentially, I would do my best to kind of portray my side of the understanding of what the religion is. But a background, obviously, I grew up in in Harrisburg uh, with Thomas here and I Pennsylvania was born in born in New York made my way out here to Harrisburg grew up here with with a lot of you guys and essentially from there I moved out to Philly where I studied economics at Temple which also then brought me to Pittsburgh where I started to get a lot more involved in the community and obviously with a lot of the environment and what's going on in America to the Muslim community and in general just the environment and learning more about the political agendas and being more interested in the topic, I got more involved and from there kind of try to get a better understanding of the religion that my, my forefathers followed and trying to understand how I can form my identity from understanding where I come from and also kind of meshing that with the American side of myself being born in this country as a first generation uh, Palestinian Muslim. And from there just, you know, now I'm just trying to make my way and, and work in this world to, to kind of give back and be a positive change in, in a world that kind of seems so dark. Uh, around you know right and i think it's very dope and one of the biggest reasons i wanted to have omar on here because you know i, I grew up you know at a much at his house like every day as a kid and also have another friend as well who's who's muslim palestinian american as well and especially growing up at omar's house because you know his people are, are, are you know very spiritual and religious um and understanding with islam and it's like the islam i grew up around is not the islam y'all portray on the tv and the media and stuff like that like just some hate-filled terroristic you know what i mean like religion i'm like well no that that is not islam at all like when they say islam is a religion of peace 
I, I, I've seen it firsthand. It really is. And those people here are like, oh, no, 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 that's not the truth. But no, nah, man, that's why I have Omar here today really break it down. Because you guys, I feel a lot of times people, when people have so many opinions about Islam, where do you get this information from? Probably like Wikipedia or from Fox News. And with that being said, we don't have a good perception of what it is. So that's why Omar's on here today. So Omar's, I guess, you know, for the, you know, the novice person who may not know much about Islam or... Um, I guess kind of explain maybe just, you know, maybe some of the misconceptions come with it or just the general uh, idea of yeah. ideology of it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, like you said, I mean, what you said there was where do you learn about Islam, right? And I think Nelson Mandela said that the remedy to racism is relationship. Hmm. So the idea that learning Islam from meeting Muslim people will really bring a brighter light to what the religion means. Okay. You know, learning it from a media that has agendas um, again, that's causes a lot of the problems within our societies, right? A lot of the people who have, you know, a very racist look at African Americans in this country do so because they see things on the media and then they portray or they paint a brush on all of African Americans and from there we find problems in our society. There's no relationship between different cultures and one of the things before I get started in the Islamic faith and in the Quran is that um, God tells us that he's created people in different tribes and different cultures and then he tells us why, for us to get to know one another. Mm. And there's no separation between people except for consciousness. So this is a quote from the Quran, right? Except for those that are mindful and conscious of their existence, that think and ponder. Um, this is actually what distinguishes people from other people, not their composition, you know, not what they're made of, not something that they didn't have control over, essentially, right? So when it comes to Islam, I mean, we might not get through the whole thing, you know, what is Islam, the whole thing, right. but just in a nutshell, what is Islam? Islam is a, is a philosophy of life, right? So the idea is that what we believe, um, Islam, the word Islam, what Islam means is technically the Arabic word means submission, right? So what submission here means is physically as human beings, we submit to certain things in our bodies, right? right. So our bodies submit to the idea that we need sleep. Yeah. Our bodies submit to the idea that we need food. These things are essential. We cannot go without them, right? right? And in the same aspect, Islam tells you that you're more than just this physical body that's made of this physical world. You're, you're made of an intellect and you're made of a spirit as well. And just as your physical body is in submission, you must also have your intellect and spirit in a sort of submissiveness to this world, right? To God. Right. This is the idea there. So the idea is, what is the process in gaining this submissiveness? But submissiveness is usually coming with a, a negative connotation. Right. In, in fact, that's not what it necessarily is. It's just saying that you as a human being have to understand that this world is larger than you and you're a component of it, yeah. right? And there's there's a kind of like a guidance on how you get through this life. And that's what Islam tries to do. Islam tries to give you tools to gain this type of consciousness, yeah. right? And that's when we get into something like the foundation of this religion. The Prophet, peace be upon him, said that this religion was built on five. Right, so Islam is built on five. And what those five is, if you've heard of it before, are the five the pillars, pillars of Islam. Right. So sometimes these are taught in a stationary way or in a static way, but what these are are tools to gain consciousness of why we're here on earth. So I could say, I guess, for people within the Christian faith, it's kind of like the Ten Commandments almost in a sense. Similar, but I would say it's a little different, right? Okay. Because these are actually, and I can go through them, like these are actually conscious tools hmm. uh, to gain understanding of your existence to, to make you ponder and give you physical um, physical and physiological experiences that bring you closer to God so for example one of the um, five pillars is prayer right so prayer is a structured type of prayer that we do five times a day right, right? so one of the reasons um, that this is important a lot of the arguments of, about prayer that come from other faces why doesn't a human just pray whenever they feel holy whenever they feel spiritual why does it have to be a structured way to pray? So God tells us in, in his um, words that sometimes the best time to pray is when you don't feel like it. Mm. But then there's also different things about the prayer that bring this consciousness together. Like one is our prayers are congregational. Mm. Our prayers bring together all people of the faith. They kind of break the border of um, socioeconomic class because you'll have a king or a leader, a political figure, you know, praying next to someone who's low class or different classes, right? Different socioeconomic classes are standing next to each other five times a day. And it also structures structures your day. So, you know, regardless of what you're doing, if you're in school or if you're learning, if you have a job, anything, it doesn't matter your occupation, every day is kind of formulated around these five prayers. There's one early in the morning, there's one at the midday, there's one in the afternoon, one at sunset, and one, 
right before basically the end of the day. Now, with your prayers, uh, from my understanding, is there a general direction that you guys pray into? Yeah. So this is a very interesting topic. So sometimes people get confused. They think that we pray to the Kaaba. And what the Kaaba is, is that structure in Mecca that you can you see people circumnavigate. Uh, the giant cube. The giant cube. So right. essentially, we pray in that direction. But that's what it is. So in Arabic, it's called Qibla. And Qibla means direction. So this is the direction that we pray to, but it's not because it, the actual rock is, is significant in terms of it is it is a holy site mm -hmm. because of uh, uh, its location and the love that the Prophet had for it. Right. Just a quick history, the Kaaba or the Qibla, the cube, was built by Abraham at first, okay. and then it went through structures and time, times over. And this is the belief of the Islamic faith, and then the Prophet's uh, time, it was there, and it was a, a, you know, a place of um, worship. But essentially, it's just a direction for unity. All right. Long story short, I kind of got jumbled up there. Yeah, Long story right. short, right. it is a direction for unity. Okay. So the faith in itself is an individual faith, right? right Islam right. is a way of life for the individual. But the premise of Islam, the foundation, is how to build community. That's what it's all about. Every single object that we have is to you know form connections through the hearts of people. Okay. Right. And so to that point, talk about community. Um, recently, um, Ramadan had just, uh, just ended mm -hmm. and obviously every year, um, uh, you know, you know, literally billions of, you know, Muslims worldwide, uh, you know, observe and celebrate the holiday of Ramadan. Uh, and that's, that's a, definitely a very, you know, communal based, uh, thing I see when people come together. So for those who don't know, I mean, some of you may know about the fasting part too, but explain what, what, what is Ramadan? Yeah, absolutely. So it's a great question. And. We just ended Ramadan, like you said, about 1.7, 1.8 billion Muslims around the world who together fast during this holy month. So one month out of the calendar year of the Muslim calendar, we fast from sunrise to sunset. Okay. So from pre-dawn, essentially, from our first prayer to the sunset prayer. And essentially, there's different layers of Ramadan, but the first layer is the physical fast. So in that period, in that window from sunrise to sunset, we fast from anything physical, such as water, such as food such as sexual intercourse with your with your spouse, anything that keeps you connected to the, the physical world. Right, smoking, drinking. Smoking, drinking, all, all these right. types of things. Cursing so, as well. So that that cursing goes more to like the second realm. Okay, okay. Right, so the first realm is more physical. Right. So it frees you from desires that you have in this world, right? Um, and that frees up a lot of things. That frees up your mind to think about other things. And it also... One of the contexts that physical has is to put you in an empathetic state for people who have less, right? So for people around the world who don't have what, you know, other people who are more fortunate have, such as water, such as food, it's so accessible, mm -hmm. right? It's very uncommon for someone in, let's say, America to go a day without water, right? right? It's very uncommon for you to feel, you know, anxious about where are you going to find the next meal. But there's places... Today in the world, even in America, even certain parts of our city in Harrisburg or Pittsburgh, wherever you're from, and also around the world, our brothers and sisters in different parts of Africa, the Middle East, in Yemen with the war that's going on mm -hmm. now. And all over, essentially, there's people who are anxious about where they're going to find the next meal, not only for themselves, but for their kids, so on and so forth. So a lot of times you won't understand what that feeling is unless you put yourself in that state. And then it gives you a different outlook on life. It, it makes you treat people a little differently. Um, it, it makes your nose go down. It's like an Arabic saying. It makes you a little bit less arrogant in a sense. Be humble. Be humble, exactly, <laughs> right? And this is the physical part. But what the physical part also does is it gives you time to ponder and think and reflect. So when you you know, you know feel thirst and you kind of stretch your hand to get some water, mm. you automatically get this thought, you know, okay, wow, I'm fasting today. And then you reflect on existence and you reflect on what God tells you to reflect on and the different thoughts that go through your mind and why you're doing it and the purpose. And then again, that gets you to the next realm of fasting, which is fasting of, you know, the heart. You know, fasting of your emotions and things of that sort. So getting angry, like you said, right? Manifesting that anger is actually something that will break your fast, which mm -hmm. will avoid your fast, right. right? So obviously you go throughout the day and you interact with people and you'll have these feelings come to your heart, whether it's anger, whether it's jealousy, whether it's, you know, you feel like you want to backbite or these things that happen to you naturally. What fasting is telling you is don't let it manifest. Okay. Don't let it manifest. Control yourself. Be conscious of the emotions you're having. Because usually you go out throughout the day, you're not conscious of these things. You kind of just fall into your ways. Right. right. So Ramadan is telling you control, become one with yourself. 
like spiritually, intellectually, and physically become one. Align yourself. And then you, you kind of extend your hand to God and you kind of make this connection that's deeper when you're not fasting. Right. And one thing I can actually personally attest to that is that a lot of people may not know for maybe four or five years, I would actually um, fast with Omar and his family. Um, early on, it was maybe for like a week, a couple of days. Mm-hmm. But then a couple of summers, I did the full entire month yeah. uh, was fasting. And I was not I was not Muslim. Mm-hmm. Um at the time, I was still Christian at the time, and it was more just on a spiritual enlightenment. And I can personally test fasting for a whole day, it really puts stuff in perspective. It really gets like a mental, physical, and spiritual cleanse. It, you don't even have to do anything in terms to actual religious part to it, right? Just on a spiritual, just you make yourself feel better. Um, it really does give that clarity to it. And that's one thing I always do admire people who who are Muslim and, and, and fast for Ramadan. Because it really is tough, especially not, you know, it's one thing not eating food that day, but then you can't even drink water. And it's not like people, when they fast for Ramadan, a lot of days it's like, okay, we're just going to sit at home in a, in a closed room for a whole month. No, nah, like they have regular jobs, everything you got to deal with. And so to deal with every, every day, you know, responsibilities, stresses, and everything comes with that on top of going through this process of Ramadan, it's something that's very, it requires a lot of discipline to it. And I always, always admired it. And so... Obviously, with you know Ramadan just ending, um, you have a celebration at the end of it, mm-hmm. correct? Mm-hmm. Um, which um, people know as Eid. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe explain what 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 is Eid? What does it represent? Yeah, absolutely. So it's beautiful because at the end of the thirty days, you know, you want to celebrate, right? Right. And, and to your point, if I can just make that point, you said about the actual mental change that you have during Ramadan. So if you look at the human brain, it's it's always biologically changing, right? It's the way our brain works. So they say it takes 27 days to make or break a habit, right? Because the idea is that when you put your body and your brain into training, it actually biologically changes. Mm. So when you have 30 consecutive days of fasting, you, you change the composition of your brain in the way that you want, right? Mm. It's, it's a training period right. for your brain. And it puts you, like you said, it gives you clarity. And that clarity is supposed to extend into the rest of the year. It's supposed to be the boost for the rest of the year increasing you into a different level of intellect and spirituality, right? So back to the yeah. So at the end of those 30 days, you know, you've been fasting the whole month. You've been with your friends and your family the whole month. You want to celebrate at the end of the year. But it's very interesting that the whole holiday, which is Eid al-Fitr, mm-hmm. the day of feast, is centered around Zakat al-Fitr, which is the charity of the Eid. So for you to put a seal on your fast, for it to be counted, on the last day you actually have to take some food, right, and go out and give it to the poor. Mm. That is the seal on the end of the okay. holiday, right? So the whole holiday is about, I mean, the whole Ramadan is about an internal spiritual cleanse, but there's always a context of other people. There's always a context of community. There's always a context of helping those less fortunate. This religion is based on helping those, just like many religions are, right? Mm-hmm. Helping the less fortunate, those who cannot help themselves. So to put a seal on this month of Ramadan, the Eid, what you referenced is basically a holiday of celebration and a holiday of extending a hand to these people that need help. Yeah, because growing up, we always thought like this was like almost not the equivalency, but similar to Christmas, almost in a sense mm-hmm, yeah. of just the giving, the holidays, yeah, yeah. the good spirits. Um, and, you know, it always you know because you know because because growing up, you know, Omar and with a close friend of me, they're both Muslim, did not celebrate, you know, Christmas or anything like that, these holidays. So it was like, it was always their holiday, kind of seemed like another mm-hmm. thing and, and celebrating. Yeah, All right, but so we still spent every single Christmas every dinner single, together. Every Christmas dinner, I'm going to pull up my house, chill with the fam, man. Um, always lit. All right, so with that being said, to transition a little bit. Okay, so that's a little background about Ramadan. All right, so that's a big prop- proponent of a lot of people know, about component of the religion people know. Um, so obviously... Really since, you know, what 9-11 happened, um, it seemed like definitely through the media, Muslim and Islam was a, a, became a scapegoat. And a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of stereotypes came out of it. A lot of misconceptions um, happened because of that. And especially, you know, moving to today's political climate in today's society. Um, again, there's, there's so many things that are, are, are misconstrued on Islam. And so... I guess let's, I mean, we want to get straight into it. Let's kind of like break these things down because I feel like a lot of stuff, you know, like I still time on Twitter and things and I follow people from both sides, right? I follow people who are left liberal Democrats, I follow people who are right, right wing Republican, GOP, Trump train, okay? Mm-hmm. And I'll be honest, both sides really don't have a, a true idea 
what Islam truly is. I mean, the left, you know, you guys are defending it and in the liberal side and calling it Islamophobia and stuff like that, which is good. Same time on the right, you guys really don't know nothing what you're talking about, to be honest. Um, the left, you guys really don't truly know really too much about it either, to be honest, as well. So I think it's a true meeting of the minds and understanding, okay, there's something that we do not know about that you're not educated on that somehow apparently our whole entire country are experts on. Um, okay, so one thing I want to talk about, all right, we'll start with this. All right, unfortunately, you know, you know what you see with the, with, with ISIS and, you know, these, these terroristic events and things happen, we somehow make it seem like all, all Muslims are, 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 are terrorists and this is a, a, a Islam, a religion of, of you know, of, of hate. But it's like perspective proportion. He's like, look, there are over 1 billion Muslims in the world. 1 billion people. Are you about to tell me that 1 billion people are hateful, like, terrorist, radicalized people? So, I guess that's why some people have the perception, like, oh, what is it? Oh, Islam's a religion of peace. And they always try to show some, like, radicalized, I mean, uh, um, event or something that happens. So... I guess, Omar, I want to start with the hot topic. Why do you think that some people become radicalized in mm -hmm. the small minority mm -hmm. of the religion? And I guess, how do the rest of the uh, general, you know, Islamic uh, community feel about these unfortunate um, things? Absolutely. Yeah, so, I mean, it's a great question, man. And to start off, like, Islam, like you said, is made comprised of 1.7, 1.8 billion people. So we're talking about, you know, the second largest religion in the world. That comprises over, you know, over seventy different types of nationalities, and one of the things that's interesting is that if you look at what an average person thinks a Muslim looks like, it's that angry Arab yelling with a big beard, right? So like, right. usually like a Saudi Arabian, for example. So if you just look at the basic populations, right? Saudi Arabia has about twenty million people, okay. right? Twenty million out of one point seven billion is made up of Saudi Arabian. India itself, which has a minority of Muslims, has 200 million Muslims, which is 10 times Saudi Arabia. Sheesh. Pakistan has about another 200 million. And Indonesia has about 250 million. Okay. So in South Southeast Asia, you have about 750 million Muslims, right? Who don't look like anything of what we think the Muslim look like very in America, true, right? So true. media is very strong in allowing you to think, what does the imagery of a Muslim look like? How do we want you to think of a Muslim? So that's something to take into account. Now, are there radical people who, who pervert a religion? Absolutely, just like there are in every religion, right. right? If I looked at the KKK and said that Christianity is a violent, um, you know, killing religion, because, you know, the KKK says, you know, in the name of Jesus Christ, we mm -hmm. kill and we lynch black African-American people, and, and also they're racist towards every non-white right. type of uh, individual. So you cannot just extrapolate and say all of Christians, right? So the majority of Muslims are, are condemning and pushing back on those extremists that pervert the religion, right? Because in the, the book of, of Allah, in the book of the Quran, 113 out of 114 chapters begin with Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, in, in the name of God, the most gracious, the most merciful. This is a book that we know. The same book that says that killing an innocent person is as if you killed all of humanity. And saving an innocent person is as if you saved all of humanity. Mm. So why do I think people become extreme? I think there are people in certain socioeconomic, geopolitical sectors of the world that go towards extremism um, because of the conditions that they're in. Right. So there was a research study done on suicide bombings in a certain time period. And I don't have the exact statistics, but I can pull it up for you um, Later on, and for, for the people listening, I can add a link to we'll it. We'll add a link to, the, link to the thread and check it out. So essentially, what, what the researcher came to, to understand was that all of them are, are due to a socio-political type of war, a type of um, necessity for the person to try to feel free in an oppressed land, right? So people are pushed to the edge, and then they're usually manipulated by other people who have perverted the religion to give them an outing, mm -hmm. right? So people who are depressed, people who are in a socio-economic uh, lower class, people who are maybe occupied by occupiers, uh, things of that sort, usually are pushed to the edge, and then through an escape of religion, they're able to give their life and do something that's probably, that's not part of the religion, right? So, you know, this is something that's always misconstrued and then paintbrushed by the media in order to, you know, follow some sort of agenda. I think one of the best things, you know, that a mentor of mine told me to ponder and think about is, Malcolm X, um, you know, was a big figure in, during the civil rights movement, and he was coined and called by, 
the media a fascist. He was going to call the communist because of his speech. Now take him in today's day and age. Right. If he preached the same thing, what would he probably be labeled now? Like a revolutionary, uh, Islamic uh, fundamentalist, uh, things of this sort. Right. You know, because of um, you know, what is the media trying to paintbrush right now? What is the hot topic? Who is the minority group that we're going to put under this wheel of oppression in order to profit, in order to move an agenda? Right. Right. So America's kind of been built on this idea of having this wheel of oppression, and every so often there's someone who's under this wheel. And the people who control this wheel are the ones who are profiting off of this oppression and off of this media smearing, mm -hmm. right? So you can look through history of America. You can look from the Native Americans to the African-American brothers and sisters, you know, who's, who this country was built on. Right. You know, the blood, sweat, and tears for free. Right. Free labor. You see what I'm saying? And then from the Japanese-Americans, from the early uh, Italians and, and Catholics that were here that were prosecuted, um, all the way up until now where you still have, you know, the Muslim community who's really being pushed under this wheel for the same concept, right? And, and, and to that point, I, I mean, I think it's it's a cycle of this country. There's always someone that, you know, who is the lesser, right? There's always some type of propaganda someone against. Like, example, um, you know, when Pearl Harbor happened, right? Uh, they had Japanese internment camps where if you were Japanese, you were Japanese-American, living in this country, but born in this country, you were taken and put into that camp, okay? Um, you know what I mean? We, we, we scapegoated them, we made them uh, Japanese are there, the terrorists. It's the same thing that repeats itself over time. And as I said earlier before, you know, especially with 9-11 happening, it was really pushed this whole, you know, scapegoat Muslim terroristic um, aspect to it. And, and even because we, again, with the media and stuff, we created this notion that somehow you're a Muslim, like that you're, 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 you're bad or something like that. One of the biggest aspects you saw was, you know, the past eight years with President Obama, there's all this narrative pushed around that Obama's a undercover Muslim. And it's like, first of all, like, okay, first of all, let's step back thing. Okay, if he was Muslim, so, so what? Like, what, what, how, how is that I mean, some yeah, type of like... This country was built on religious freedom. Right, and so it's like the fact that well, if he's Muslim, like, as if that, that's supposed to be like, what, he's a, he's a spy or something? That somebody's un less credible because of that, because of his faith? Mm -hmm. um, and it's just a hypocrisy people have to that, that notion. Um, and so, again, it's, it's, it's a large misconception. Um, and, and so... Moving forward, I see especially at times people who are, you know, sometimes towards the right, I see, um, more conservative, they point out some anomalies or little things in Islam that they don't really fully understand. So one thing I guess we people, uh, what they, they criticize is that the uh, treatment of women in Islam, right? Uh, some people say that... Um, Women are, are, are oppressed in Islam and that, you know, Islam is, you know, a very uh, um, regressive, you know, um, ideology and religion in terms of, you know, uh, social, economical and gender development. And a lot of times people, you know, oftentimes the biggest thing people point to is Saudi Arabia, right? Mm -hmm. That's the hot thing in Saudi Arabia, how they treatment of women there. And because Saudi Arabia is a, you know, like a large majority Muslim, they just automatically assume Muslim Saudi Arabia that it's one in one and that all Muslim women are treated that way. Mm -hmm. But for me, just to say, growing up and stuff around your household, even though Omar has a sister, he has a mother, um, other friend has a mother and a sister. Um, I never saw this oppression or anything like that. I never saw them being held back or like anything else at all. Actually, I saw other household Christian, like faithful households in which women are actually a lot more oppressed or held back. So where do you think that comes from? And can you guys explain, I guess, maybe the role of women in Islam and how they're viewed? Yeah, absolutely. So first, I mean, you brought up Saudi Arabia and their treatment of women. So does Saudi Arabia have a problem with the way they treat women? Yes. But that's a Saudi Arabian problem. Right. Like you said, it's not, a, it's, it's not a problem with the religion of Islam, right? So the religion of Islam is actually not the issue. The issue is the imperfection of the human beings that follow the religion. Mm. So you have to kind of address the situation where it is. Another one of the arguments is, is the idea of uh, female um, genital mutilation, right. right? And somehow it's been speared as an Islamic issue. But if you look at the region where it is, if you look at the you know parts of Africa where it usually happens, if you look at Ethiopia or Eritrea, which are primarily, primarily Christian countries, we're not going to say that it's a Christian issue. Well, mm. no, it's an issue of the region. Right. So similarly, like if we talk about the role of women in Islam, 
women have always played a, a huge role in Islam. I mean, the original wife of the Prophet, peace be upon him, was an entrepreneur, a CEO. She was the richest woman in the, in the tribe of Quraysh in, in the Arabian Peninsula. Mm -hmm. She was the benefactor and the, the primary um, financial supporter of the Islamic movement when it was first started. She was the one that the Prophet, peace be upon him, described as the only one who believed in him when no one else did, who showed him support and was basically his his day one. His ride or die. His ride or die, right? right? 80% of the knowledge that we have about the Prophet's sayings and the Prophet's doings is from his wife Aisha, mm. right? The Hadith. So most of the Hadith is from uh, Aisha, radiallahu anha, you know, may God bless and peace uh, upon her. And, and these are just things from the past. But women have played a big role in Islam. The first university was that known to us was in Morocco, which was actually founded by a Muslim woman named Fatima. Mm. Right. So they've always had a, a big role. And if we look more currently, right, so the idea that we always kind of paintbrush Saudi Arabia as the image of Islam. This is what women are treated like all over the world. Look, they can't drive, for example. Right. right, right. That is a Saudi Arabian issue. And nowhere in the faith does it say women can't drive. Right. You know, and one of the things I always hear is that women are riding camels in the same place where they can't drive today. That's just an example. But if we look at other Muslim countries, right, since 1988, eight countries have had Muslim women as their heads of state, including Turkey, Indonesia, Senegal, Kyrgyzstan, Bangladesh, who's had two, Pakistan, and the list goes on, right? Um, the idea here is that women are influential in Muslim countries. And they're making moves in Muslim countries. And the Muslim title pushes every person who follows it to do the best. The concept in Islam is called Ihsan, right? To live in excellence, right? So is there a, is there people who pervert the religion and use it to oppress other people? Absolutely. Right. I mean, we, we see that all over the world. We see that in colonization of, of you know, when we see look at Christianity and Catholicism, when they use that same excuse to enslave Please. millions of people Ten and bring millions. them to a new country and shave them of their history and make them work free labor and create a country and profit off their backs. Right. right. Or just globalization in general, just going across, you know, different countries all across the world and, you know, again, stripping of your, your background, your knowledge and information and forcing it upon people and using it to the wrong ways. And to that point, it's very interesting how you say, you know, throughout these different, you know, Muslim countries that, you know, women are, are you know, position of power and political uh, power. And, you know, here in the United States, I mean, hey, we, we still haven't had a woman president yet. Yeah. Um, yet somehow. Almost. Almost. Oh. Almost. Right. Still haven't had a woman right. president. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, anyway, but it's very interesting to, the, to that point. And that's, and that's something that people always try to, uh, you know, talk about, all right, so I guess maybe talk about, you know, people will see, you know, women wearing, you know, wear hijab mm -hmm. and wearing a full garb and everything. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, especially at times, you know, everything covered up besides your eyes. Um, mm -hmm. and I guess, and I guess when people see that, they, you know, it's funny, it's a double standard, right? You know, you see a woman, you know, a Muslim woman with hijab and garb on, right? Oh, she's oppressed. But we see a nun who's essentially wearing the same exact thing. Mm -hmm. It's, oh, she's a, Woman of power and, and spirituality and freedom and independence. Yeah. But it's like, yo, it's a, she's wearing like the same exact thing. Yeah. So I guess why I guess um in religion why do women why are women are I guess be be covered up in that sense or what what does that come from? Yeah. So I'm always very cautious to talk about. I usually like a woman to come and express her feelings okay. about this type of stuff. But just from what I know from having a mother who does wear the hijab mm -hmm. and a sister who doesn't wear the hijab. Okay. Um, I have experience and many friends that do and many friends that don't so the first thing i want to say about it is that it is an external manifestation of the religion right okay so it is very noticeable right if you see a woman wearing it you can tell she's muslim whereas for men there's no physical distinction for us like i'll walk down the street some people think i'm spanish some people think i'm x y and z they don't know what i am right there's no physical indication that i'm muslim right so it's actually a very powerful thing for them and it's a very courageous thing for them to do especially in the climate that we live in right so in countries like America, no one, I mean, you might have family, like a father that forces a daughter to wear it, right? That's an individual case. You have to address him. He does not understand the religion properly. Right. The reason I brought up that it's a physical manifestation is because praying is obligatory upon a Muslim. But you looking at me, you can't tell if I pray or not. Fasting is obligatory upon a Muslim. But you looking at me, you can't tell if I fast or not. Giving charity is obligatory upon me. But you cannot tell if I give charity or not. A woman, you can tell whether or not she wears a hijab. So why I bring that up is because human beings fluctuate in spirituality, right? 
Some days we'll be up, we'll feel holy. Some days we'll kind of doubt and we'll have objections. Maybe we'll question why we're here, or question the actual existence of God. And this is natural. Imam Ghazali, one of the great scholars in Islam, tells you that when you have doubts, it's obligatory upon you to gain knowledge to figure out why you're doubting. Right? So the reason I bring this up is because when a woman fluctuates in spirituality, she may wear it, she may not wear it. She may go through the same cycle that I go with with prayer or with fasting or with giving charity. Sometimes I give charity, sometimes I don't. But no one can see it. Mm -hmm. But you can see a woman wear or not wear it. So to judge a woman's internal relationship with God based on what she wears, you got to be careful, mm -hmm. right? Because the prophet peace be upon him tells us not to judge a person's heart. We don't know what's inside. But the idea of the of the hijab, first of all, the face, the fully face covering is not obligatory. Okay. Right. What's obligatory is the hijab, is what you see, right? The covering of the of the head. Um, if we had like a video, we could show, but we don't. Maybe we'll pop it up or we'll something. Pop it in the thread. We'll see it. Yeah, but essentially, you know, it's it's a modesty thing, right? Okay. The religion itself is about modesty, and it's interesting because the word hijab, when it shows up in the Quran, first references men. Right, so hijab literally means a, a barrier. Right, so the light when Moses went to see God, this is the the belief when he went to see God, all he saw was a light. He didn't actually see God, and in the in the Quran it was called a hijab. So God's hijab is the light. A man's hijab is his gaze. He must be in control of his gaze. This is his hijab, and a woman's hijab is the physical manifestation. Right, so the religion is a religion of modesty. The Prophet, peace be upon him, said that every religion has essence, and the essence of Islam is modesty. Mm -hmm. So it's one of those cases where it's it's made as a, a, a source of modesty and a protection for women. So it, you have to understand when this when this book came down, it came down in a historical moment, and the way they treated women in that time was a cert, It was very vulgar in, in senses. Um, you know, people didn't have as much policing back then, so it was mm -hmm. a, a way to protect the woman as well, right. her sanctity and protecting her from, you know. When she went out late at night or went out without someone to protect her, you know, there might be people in the villages that come out and attack or abduct and things like that. And this was a form of protection. Okay. So to that point, right, I guess, you know, in certain countries you see um, where it appears, right, from the media perspective, from certain perspectives that, you know, women are being forced to wear hijabs and, you know, they have to wear or, or face, you know, some type of uh, discipline or repercussions. Yeah. Now... Through our conversation, I think maybe in those certain countries, maybe that's that country's issue of the treatment of women more than the actual Islam issue and the treatment of women. And I think because people will just put two and two together, they see, oh, well, Muslim woman, Muslim country, that just means that's a Muslim issue. Mm -hmm. And that's not necessarily the case. You really have to look at those certain places. Where is that happening? Where are the extremism of it? Um, look at these social economic factors that go into it. Mm -hmm. And as Omar has said before, there are people who, unfortunately, may misuse and not understand Islam. And they may force their, their, their women or, or, or talk down to the women. But again, that may be just be an individual problem that they have. Mm -hmm. And as we know, this general male supremacy as a whole, mm -hmm. that's in all religion, all across the, the world, mm -hmm. okay, that's happened. So we can't even put it down on just an individual Islam oppressed woman because I think, I mean, we're going to talk about that. There's, I mean... It, very conservative Christian males oppress Christian women all the time, in a sense. So, you know, it, I think it's more of a male woman thing than an Islam woman thing. And again, that's why understanding, guys, when you see that, you can't just put automatically assume, well, that's what it is. Well, no, there are many other factors that go into it that's not going to be explained on TV. I haven't explained by anybody that you want to see on Fox News or any other network you see or CNN, MSNBC. They not really explain these things. They don't know that. But they want to, what they do want to do is push their agenda regardless of whatever it may be. Yeah. Agenda is being pushed. I think it's one point to that is I met this woman in Pittsburgh and she's a 45 year old white woman. She converted to Islam okay. and she wears the whole nine yards, black niqab, hijab, she's all covered. And this was a choice that she made. And it, the thing is, I talk, you talk to her and, and ask her to explain, because first of all, you don't have to cover your face. Mm -hmm. She chooses to. And what she said is, this is the only time I've ever felt free. And this is her opinion. I'm yeah. not saying, you know. Go wear it because it makes you feel free. Right. I'm just telling you, when I spoke to an individual person, she said she wakes up. She doesn't have to wear about, you know, putting on makeup to impress people and doing her hair and looking a certain way. And when she goes out and interacts with people, no one 
cares about what she looks like because they don't see her. They only want to know what's on her mind. What does she speak? She does her job. She, you know, moves up, gets promoted, all these types of things. The idea is that she escapes, you know, the, the, the fakeness, for lack of better words, that we kind of go through in terms of like this front we put up to impress people to look a certain way in a certain way that the media has portrayed and, and made us think is the ideal way to look, the ideal size to be, the ideal amount of makeup to wear, eyeliner, haircuts, fade, you know what I'm saying? Like right, right. Everything is just there. Like We have to look and feel a certain way in order to perform. But she just wakes up and she goes. Right. So, and, and that's an interesting point of being just uh, being being comfortable and being your own skin. And that's her personal, you know, her experience. That's her experience. And but it's very interesting, you know. This is a way for a white woman who converted. You know, that's. I'm sure she might have had other privileges throughout her life, yeah. and she made this conscious decision herself. Yeah. And I think it's very dope. And I see all the time just Islam, like all right, I personally contest this. Okay, I've talked to people from all different religions and stuff. Right, people are Christian, Muslim, Jewish, um, you know, Indian, atheist. Um, agnostic, um, you know, smart study, you know, African spirituality, where it may be, right? And I can say that from my perspective and experiences, people who are Muslim are extremely less judgmental compared to people from other religions. And I can perfectly say, I've never seen, I've never seen a Muslim go to a Christian, oh, you're wrong for being Christian. That's wrong. I personally have not seen that. I mean, it now, again, it happens. No, it happens. No, yeah. Am I going to say act like it doesn't happen? No. But in terms of the times I see with Christians and how judgmental they can be, especially when you see someone like someone, oh, mm, oh, they must. Mm. Mm-hmm. For uh, religion, it's supposed to be about peace and Christianity and stuff and love. And my goodness, there's a lot of hypocrisy. Speaking of hypocrisy, transition to my next point. Obviously, in today's political climate um, in our country, especially um, with the President Trump administration. How you feel about him? That's like him or don't like him. That's people's business. But let's talk about actions, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, one thing I want to say is that since he's been elected, there has been a lot of hypocritical and selective anger. A lot of understandable anger, right? Mm-hmm. Now, when I say selective anger, I say in that sense, right? Now, when President Trump was, especially when the travel ban initially had went, had, um, you know, put in place, and it seems everybody was coming over or talking about, you know, beer. This is wrong, it's horrible, um, you're oppressing Muslims. And I was with that, like, in terms of people's sympathy, cool. Mm-hmm. But I was like, hold on, y'all, y'all the same people that this last week associated every single Muslim with being a terrorist on TV and stuff. Y'all the same people after 9-11 that was stereotyping and biasing them. So because President Trump hates them, now suddenly now you won't be an outside to it. And I felt a little hypocritical because one aspect as well was that people, this, you know, President Trump was talking about, you know, building this wall, right, to separate, you know, us in Mexico, right? Mm-hmm. Regardless how you feel about it, right, they want to build this wall. And people like, oh, this is wrong, it's horrible. However, in Israel, which is a country that we literally give billions of dollars to annually, mm-hmm. they have a wall that is literal like apartheid. So that's what they want to talk about, Omar, but you being a Palestinian-American first generation, all your family was born in Palestine. Mm-hmm. Your family that live in Palestine. Mm-hmm. But understand, you go back and visit still to Palestine. Mm-hmm. So your actual, you, 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 you've been there, you have people literally living in the trenches who are there. What can you talk about that situation? And again, you can correlate me to the media aspect of why people are not fully aware. People might have heard this, it's really Palestinian conflict, but I mean, I don't think people fully understand what's going on. So please explain. You can start the historical aspect to it. I mean, please go in. Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, before we start this topic, I always get on the table that anything we say about the policies and the actions of Israel is not anti-Semitic. It has nothing to do with Judaism. Judaism is another religion, monotheistic Abrahamic religion, that Islam accepts. Right in terms of it's a, in, in in the Quran is Ahl al-Kitab, people of the book. By no means do we touch anti-Semitism when we talk about the policies of Israel, right? Because this is something that gets very te- like very uh, borderline, and people really get sensitive, and they it's a media stunt as well, right? Because what they try to do is they try to gain sympathy by saying that someone like me who sees 
the massacres in Gaza, who sees the thousands of ref the millions of refugees, I'm sorry, the, the displacement of hundreds of thousands to millions of people, the diaspora of six million Palestinians, the no right to return to their homeland, the killings, the murders, the rapes. And then they say, I'm being anti-Semitic. By no means am I anti-Semitic. I have Jewish friends. Right. Oh, I, 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 yes. I, I, I have an Israeli citizenship. Right. right. I'm in touch with a lot of Israeli people and Jew Jewish people. It has nothing to do with the religion. It has to do with occupation. The political, right. With the occupation. All right. So in terms of occupation, a lot of people may not realize, right, because we think of, you know, blue, uh, you know uh, biblical times, you hear Israel. People, I think, at times correlate that biblical Israel as a same Israel as today state of Israel, but it is not the same thing. Mm -hmm. Not people realize Israel is less than 70 years old. Um, it was created in the, I believe, 1948. Yes. Um, actually, um, check it out. I wrote my thesis and graduated from college on the United States' involvement in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Plug. Very, very intriguing. I'll post a thread about that later on. So with that being said, I guess talk about the cre creation of the state of Israel and how that affected the actual state of Palestine in the over the years of how it's expanded in terms to this conflict we have now. Absolutely, yeah. So, I mean, it goes back, when you look at, there were always Jews that were in Palestine in right. in um, the geographical area in the Palestine. geographical area in Jerusalem right mm -hmm. and there were Arab Jews as well right the majority population were Arabs for for hundreds and hundreds of years I mean we're talking about back maybe you know over a thousand years so the Israel we see today was kind of coming into play around the 1920s mm -hmm. right and it's not gonna be you can look up the history and things like that and read about it but essentially this after a lot of the you know racism and killing and segregation towards the Jewish people in, in Europe by the you know Eastern and Western Europeans you know the other you know white folks that were right. were uh, segregating and killing and and and, and um, putting the Jewish people in the state there was people who wanted in the Jewish the diaspora there who wanted to create a country that was protective for these people. Zionist. Okay, so then we get into the Zionist movement, right? The movement of Zionism where they wanted a homeland for the Jewish people. So there was actually, I mean, I don't know if you've heard of this or not, but there was actually talks about, okay, why don't we find a place in Uganda? This was actually one of the first things. Was Uganda, you know, a place in Africa that we can, you know, find a piece of land that no one lives on and, and put these Jewish people there. But the Zionism movement wanted the homeland of the biblical Jerusalem, the mm -hmm. biblical Israel, right? So right. this was the big push. And it's not like this was just a bunch of low socioeconomic people. I mean, we're talking about big figureheads in, in America, big figureheads all over Europe that pushed for this as well because of tactical purposes, He's, because of the geopolitical area, because of all these types of Some of the same people that own the Federal Reserve pushing for this. So yeah. that's type of money we on here. Yeah, this, this <laughs> is bigger than just that. But essentially around like the 1920s, 30s, you started to see migration of Jewish people into this, this area. And you started to see a lot of deconstruction of the arc of like the agriculture you started to see some conflicts in between the arab population the indigenous population there and the migrants that were coming in right and during the time that the british had palestine as their mandate you started to see a lot of violence occurring not only against palestinians but a lot of these jewish uh colonizers were coming in military like with military power and actually killing British military and British administration and blowing up British uh, houses and, and British ad administrative locations in order to entice, you know, terrorism and, and scare people away. So it's it started around that time. And then in 1948, you know, there was the Nakba in Arabic or the catastrophe where it was actually put into uh, a play that Israel would become a recognized country. And this was the original partition. Right. So the original partition of Israel and Palestine was something that the Arabs did not agree upon in the area. Right. So the Palestinians and the surrounding countries did not agree upon at that time. Right. So short history. I mean, obviously, from there, there was a war that went on because, you know, you had an indigenous people that started losing land that was being kicked out. They were being killed and enticed. Right. So you fast forward to a lot of things that happened in 1967 was another big war. And in this war is when you see 
the occupation really start. I mean, there was always oppression and everything, but the occupation of West Bank and Gaza was at this 1967 period. That's why they call it the 1967 borders. But essentially what we have today, right, we can always talk about the past, Thomas, but what we have today is an issue that we have to look forward to, to fixing, right? Mm -hmm. So when you have an occupied people that don't have the right to vote, that don't have the right to move, that are harassed, killed, and murdered on a daily basis, right, it makes it very hard for you to even come to the negotiating table and you don't even have the power to negotiate. negotiate. So a lot of times it's seen as an Israeli-Palestinian conflict, right? No. A war between two equal parties. No. It's an <laughs> occupier and an occupied, yeah. right? There's, there's no equality here, right? If, it's one of the most military, like militarily advanced countries first, a, 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 you know, a poor, poverty-stricken, famine-stricken, you know, unemployed group of people. It'd basically be like, you know, the U.S. Army coming into Harrisburg right now and fighting us, right? essentially. And then we kind of just try to make what we can and fight back. And and one thing people may not realize, which I'll, I'll link uh, pictures of this, just the growth of Israel and the deduction of Palestine over the years. I mean, it's, it's crazy. Look, these pictures is over like, you know, 10, 12-year periods of how much Israel has grown. It's like a sponge, mm -hmm. right? And how small and Palestine keeps getting and getting and getting. Yeah. So when we say this conflict, right, and we can look, you look statistics up, you look at the casualties. I mean, this, there's, there's no ifs or buts about this. This is not an equal war, mm -hmm. remotely, at all. And that's from a non-biased point of view. And again, you look at statistics to back this up as well. Uh, I recall recently, back when during the Obama administration. There was the uh, was in the summer. It was like a fifty-five day conflict. It was like in twenty fourteen. Yeah. And during that time, over a thousand Palestinians had been killed. A large majority being civilians, children, and a lot of children. And I believe it was less than fifty Israeli and mostly all soldiers had been killed. Mm -hmm. Like fifty. I'm talking like only like fifty. Mm -hmm. But you want to say this is a conflict or a war? That sounds like a genocide, mm -hmm. to be honest. Mm -hmm. And I was actually very, my personal self, I was kind of condemned or President Obama because he didn't say anything about it. Mm -hmm. He let it rock out like nothing happened. Mm -hmm. um, so you yourself, in that environment, okay, so I mentioned this wall that's in Israel. Yeah. What What, what is that? Yeah. So, I mean, it is a separation wall. So the idea behind the wall from the Israeli perspective, is that it would protect the Israeli people from the savage Palestinian people, right? right? So essentially, it's it's interesting. If you look before the wall, there was actually less animosity, even though there's always been animosity, but on the ground, there was less animosity between the Israeli and the Palestinian people because they still interacted more, right? The, the remedy to racism is relationship. So even on the political level where Israel is right-wing and they are doing these things, on the ground, grassroots level, there was still connections between Israel and Palestinian people, which allowed them to create relationships. And if you have a friend that's Jewish, it's very hard for someone to convince you that, you know, all Israeli people are bad. Right. See what I'm saying? But now with this wall, I mean, you're a Palestinian kid. You wake up, all you see is this wall every single day, right? What took you 15 minutes to get to school now takes you two hours because you have to take a completely different route. On every side of this wall, there's snipers that are looking at you, you know, staring down at you all the time. And the idea behind this wall is supposed to be protection. But it's interesting that this wall actually goes inside the borders of the West Bank. So it's not even just bordering, you know, Israel and Palestine, but it goes inside, inside, of, the, inside of the borders of Palestine. Because right. what they do is when they create settlements inside of Palestine, then they border them along with this wall so that they can annex areas of the West Bank under Israeli um, territory, right? Although they already own it, they annex it under the government. See what I'm saying? So this whole peace process has just always been a cover up to slow to slow down talks so that they can continue to expand Israel. I mean, you can look at it. Settlements have grown exponentially. There's over 600,000 settlers now in the West Bank um, in these settlements, and they continue to grow, regardless of peace talks, regardless of what's going on. They continue to grow, even though everyone has said that they are the biggest hindering of peace talks, and also they're illegal under international law. And, and to that point, um, people, when they hear that, right, you may think, oh, well, you know, if, it, if it's so bad, how, how come the, the you know, 
United Nations hasn't condemned Israel yet. Well, actually, if you look into it, uh, United Nations on the Security Council, which um, the United States is under, which is the allies, the winning countries from World War II, uh, essentially what happens is whenever a country um, is brought up on charges of some type of, um, you know, a, a very negative environment or... Um, An internationally you know, illegal, illegal act. Uh, act, yeah. act um, they can be condemned, right, and voted on against. However, if you are a member of Security Council, you have the right to what's called vetoing it, right? Which means I can just shoot this down. And There's only so a few countries that can do that Right, well. it's for the allies, which one yeah. too. It's like eight, like six, eight countries. Mm-hmm. Over, since the creation of Israel, the United States has used that veto power over 130 times. Mm-hmm. Essentially meaning that every time you, Israel has been brought up on some charges of some type of horrendous crime, stuff like that, U.S. said, nah, fam, we good. And that's one of the reasons we, when you, and that doesn't get a problem in the media and stuff. Except for 2016. So recently, at, at the latest uh, council, Security Council of the United Nations, where they brought up uh, Israel, it was actually a unanimous vote. It was a unanimous vote that the, the settlements are internationally illegal and they have to be stopped. Uh, X, Y, and Z moving forward. It was a big deal. I mean, Benjamin Netanyahu went on live TV and had a press conference mm-hmm. where he bashed President Obama and John Kerry for what was going on. Right. It, was a, it was a pretty right. big deal okay. right before Obama left like, oh, office. Oh, Obama didn't get the cold down for the Israel. Okay. Yeah. 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 And, and one thing I can say as well, uh, piggyback to the wall, when you hear it, now it's not just actually discrimination versus Arabs. A lot of people not realize there's a large amount of uh, Jewish Ethiopians, mm-hmm. black Ethiopians, okay, mm-hmm. practice the rhythm of Judaism, mm-hmm. all right? Hebrews. And we'll talk about it later on, the true Hebrews and stuff. But anyways, so they're actually, uh, now when you think Israel is, in people being Jewish, the perception that anyone Jewish is welcome to come in, welcome back to the homeland and stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, in fact, actually, those black Ethiopians actually were denied access to Israel. That's is very, and very a lot time. of people do not talk about that. Mm-hmm. There are straight up, I mean, are, 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 are black Jews. All right, they studied the faith of, of, of Judaism faithfully, <laughs> but denied access to this sanctuary place that's supposed to be for everybody. Mm-hmm. So when you want to hear the discriminatory actions, you may think, "Oh, it's just a, it's just a, a Jew Muslim thing." Uh, not really sure that's the full issue to it behind yeah. it, because now they're actual Jews who are, unfortunately, those areas and stuff. They're essentially sanctuary because, because of the rebel force and stuff there, because of their their Jews in large these Christian countries or these uh, other countries, they have their essentially sanctuary and they're not allowed that. And these are black Jews trying to get into this country are denied. Yeah, if you look at. What's happening in Israel? If you look at the original colonization of Israel, I mean, you'll see a similar method to the white supremacist colonization of North Africa, of Africa itself, of the Americas, so on and so forth. So, to your point, in 2015, when there was a bombing in France, Benjamin Netanyahu, the Prime Minister of Israel, went and made a press conference saying that the French and Dutch Jews know in their hearts that their true home is Israel. Now, French and Dutch is primarily white European Jews. Right. So that's their true home. But at the same time, he shut down the border for African Jews to come into Israel. There's concentration camps in Israel that rile up a lot of mm-hmm. African Jews, Jews mm-hmm. a lot of Africans in general who right. went to that country for asylum that were being killed and prosecuted in other lands and came there for safety. They're taken off the streets. And they're put into these concentration camps for years until they can be deported back to their country. Mm-hmm. On top of that, when Africans were coming into Israel, they were given, they were involuntarily given birth control so that they couldn't reproduce, so that they could limit the population of these African people inside mm-hmm. of Israel. And they're very mistreated. There's political figures that hold very high places in Israel that publicly hold, you know, talks and speeches talking about how Africans are the poison of the country. Mm-hmm. Right. How they bring, you know, evil and and demon spirits to the country, all these types of nasty white supremacist um, bigot talks. Right. Publicly supported by hundreds of thousands of people. Right. By no means do we say that all Israelis support them. No. But there's a large population. Right. If you think Trump is a new phenomenon, Benjamin Netanyahu has been in power for a very long time and his ideology is very similar. Right. And, And remember, Everything we're saying, we are talking about strictly the policies mm-hmm. of the state of Israel and the political maneuvering. 
again, not separate Judaism, the faith of Judaism from mm -hmm. this. Again, this is all about the policies of the state of Israel. Mm -hmm. And again, you understand the United States support of this. The United States have given has given no less than three billion dollars annually since nineteen eighty to Israel. That's thirty plus years. Three billion dollars, no less than three billion dollars annually. And there's some other stuff that goes to the military package as well. Uh, another aspect to it of the advantage of Israel and the United States. Um, United States, now we give aid out to other countries worldwide and everything, right? One unique thing about Israel is that our most aid packages, they get almost just like any other, um, in a stipend, essentially, right? So imagine getting a stipend for a job. It's broken over a, a period of time, right? You get X amount of money here, X amount of money then in different times, right? Israel has the one unique ability. They get all the money up front, straight ahead, do whatever they want with it. Other countries have a response or report back specifically where this money coming to, where is it going and stuff, right? Most Israeli money is like goes to the military. Other stuff is not say always is not accountable. And because Israel has this Israel has this rare opportunity which they get all their money up front annually in the beginning of the year in this package and can do what they want with it. There's no actual stipulations per se how they spend this money. Mm -hmm. And so again, you guys can do your research as well, United States involvement with Israel. But again, I, I think we have to understand that you know sometimes United States pilots are policies. And it's a whole other conversation we do as well. With so many of our military actions, our bases, proxy wars we get into. At the end of the day, so many of them come back to benefit Israel. Mm -hmm. I say real quick as well, just the war in Syria and stuff like that. That is a proxy war versus Iran. Iran goes down, benefits Israel. And their security, which benefits the United States. Yeah. Oh, thank you, deep into it as yeah, well. So you, get, you can get real deep into yeah. it, but when it when it comes back to the topic of what do we do or mm -hmm. what is the solution, I mean, we have to be optimistic that there's a solution, right? Because by no means is there any solution where people are going to be kicked out of the state. No, people are there. There's generations on generations right. of Israelis. So there's two solutions that are, are publicly or internationally talked about. There's a two-state solution, which is internationally really the main solution. Or the one-state solution, which now has gotten some, you know, ground, quote-unquote, because Trump has said he doesn't care which solution as long as the people of the country are happy, right? So the reason a one-state solution is, is hindered is because if it's a one-state solution, that means every person votes. Mm -hmm. And right now, the 5 million people in the West Bank do not vote for the administration that is occupying the country. They do not have the right to vote. So they're under laws by people that they don't vote for. So if it was one state, they would all have the right to vote. And in that case, there would be a majority Arab country. So they would not have a Jewish democracy because there would be no Jewish majority. So in that case, it would have to be a two-state solution. So for anything to happen, two-state or one-state, the first thing that must happen that's internationally recognized is that the occupation has to stop and the settlements have to be stopped and there has to be peace talks, mm -hmm. right? So by no means are we saying that People have to be kicked out of the country. People right. have to this. We haven't even talked about Palestinians' right to return and what's going on there. But what we're saying is let's take the first step, be optimistic about a solution, and say that the occupation is wrong. It's a it's a freely freely occupied country. It's colonialism that's still being accepted in this world. That has to stop. Settlements have to stop. Then we move forward. And, and to that point as well... Um... I remember a story you, you, you told me before, you know, you always go back home and, and visit, you know, in Palestine, uh, visit family and things. And you're talking about just, you know, the struggle of having this wall there uh, and just, you know, example, you know, from a 15 minute, you know, cart ride to the, the school is now two hours and just the various inconveniences and things that go along there. And I always talk about this sometimes to people that as much as there as, you know, there's oppression, discrimination and a lot of various things in our country, our large history of our country, especially with African-Americans. In 2017, although absolutely as a black man, am I discriminated at times? Yes. Am I pro, uh, stereotype at times? Absolutely. Are biases against me? Absolutely. Um, but that's why I don't see as a black man. I don't. I don't think I'm oppressed because when I think of other things around the world and countries of the 2017 conditions, it think puts some things in perspective to a degree. And one thing you mentioned, you were talking about, you know, just, just driving through there, mm -hmm. like. Um, are there's like regulations of, I mean, you can, where you can drive on the highways and stuff and mm -hmm. yourself, your sir, you have Israeli citizenship, mm -hmm. dual citizenship. Yeah. And you yourself still can't drive a certain place. Can you elaborate on that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's places in, in Israel that are 
only for Israeli Jews, for example, right? So, you know, driving down certain areas, so there's certain highways that Arabs can't take. Um, there's certain neighborhoods that Arabs can't enter. Um, when it comes to purchasing homes and, and places, there's certain neighborhoods Arabs can't live, right? Kind of like the redlining in Chicago, if you read um, a, a beautiful article in the Atlantic um, about the redlining and the history of, of the slavery and racism in America. So those similar things happen openly in Israel. Yes, there's blatant racism, and that's talking from the Israeli side. When you talk about the Palestinian side, it's blatant occupation. Mm -hmm. I mean, there there's no movement in, in Gaza. In Gaza. People cannot move freely in and out. Exports do not move freely in and out. There's 70% unemployment. People cannot get jobs. Um, water is, is controlled. Airspace is controlled by the Israeli military, by the Israeli government. All these things, you know, me being an Israeli citizen is not, still there is, it's an apartheid state. But the people in Gaza are, are way worse off in terms of what they experience. I personally experience things like not being able to take certain highways. Yes, absolutely. Being stopped and checked because my aunts wear the hijab and they're racially profiled, absolutely. Things like that do happen, um, but there are other blatantly, systematically and institutionalized things that happen, but also on the ground. Like one institutionalized thing that's, that's very crazy is they just initiated, initiated a law about three years ago where you can get 20 years in prison for throwing a rock. 20 years in prison. So obviously they didn't say if you're Arab, they just made it, you know, Generally, but who are they referring to? And, and put things in perspective. Um, understand that these areas there are literal, is really tanks driving through these people's homes and neighborhoods. And I remember Omar always telling me stories stuff of, of kids, like the little kids like throwing rocks at these tanks and stuff. Mm -hmm. And now you said they're making a long yeah, so rule. If, if you look at the 1980s during the first Intifada, which was what the one of the biggest, most successful uprisings of the Palestinian people, where they just got so fed up with what was going on, they had this big uprising. And the imagery of that was a kid throwing a rock at a tank. That was one of the most famous mm -hmm. pictures. That's what Palestinians became known for. Right. And now recently, to not only put people in jail for longer, there's a lot of kids in jail in Israel and in Palestine. A lot of kids, I mean like 10 and younger, that go to jail for a long time. Right? And... To also crush the spirits, they do things like this, right? They call one of the strategies in Israel mowing the lawn of Gaza. Every few years, 2008, 2012, 2014, you see massacres in Gaza. It's a way to make sure they know that they're still being occupied. So they never have the chance to do another intifada, mm -hmm. to have another uprising. They're continually, continuously mowed, is the idea. It's a very psychological war as well. Very, uh, there's physical things, but it's very psychological. The spirits, the the intellect, the the pride of these people is just being stripped and destroyed generation after generation.